Sometimes, late at night when I can't sleep, I think about Doreen, and I think about the other girls, because there are hundreds, if not thousands, just like her. Girls who vanished into thin air, leaving others to tell and twist their story. We all think we know what happened, and maybe even how, and why. It's easy to just point the finger at the person we all think did it, and get pissed about it, and then go fold some laundry. That was the case for one recent listener of Sarah Demio's Faded Out Season 2, where I started on Doreen's case as Sarah's investigator. Doreen's story was repetitive and boring, the listener wrote in a review, as it is pretty clear that the father did something to her, and there's not much mystery or investigation that's needed into the case. I usually do my best to not let negative feedback get to me, but that one rocked me back on my heels. Not much mystery. No investigation needed? That's a slap in the face to Doreen, not only because a case that seems simple is anything but. Comments like these remind me how little we know about what really happened to Doreen. She went missing over three decades ago, in a world that might as well be the Dark Ages when you consider how far away the World Wide Web was. The police file, as I will never stop shouting, suffers from blind spots, misplaced assumptions, lost opportunities, and a lack of intellectual curiosity. A lot of that isn't necessarily anyone's fault, other than the unreliable narrators who sent this story spinning off into what they hoped was the dustbin of history. If you pay attention to these things, like me, you'll notice there are a lot of those narrators out there, men whose tales about what happened to their daughters are so full of holes that it's almost laughable. But those who truly care about girls like Doreen won't just shrug their shoulders at inconsistencies that should have been damning. They will dig in and look, really look, at what the evidence is telling them and shout for other people to come and look over their shoulder. You might have seen the recent news regarding one such girl named Andrea Michelle Bauman, born Alexis Miranda Badger on June 23, 1974. When Andrea was five months old, her biological mother, Kathy Turkarian, put her up for adoption. She was taken in and rechristened by Brenda and Dennis Bowman of Michigan. In late 1988, when Andrea was 14, she started to tell her teachers she was afraid to go home. When school staff, police, and social workers were brought in, Andrea put a brave face to her fear. Dennis, she said, had been sexually molesting her. Dennis was adamant that Andrea was lying, insisting she was only acting out because she'd recently discovered she was adopted. Andrea's mother, Brenda, wasn't really any help either, telling Andrea, who turned to her for help, that's a lie, and you know it. Just a short time later, the Bauman stole away with Andrea to a remote mobile home out in the sticks of Michigan, the last place Andrea was ever seen alive before Dennis reported her missing on March 11, 1989. According to him, she had stolen money from her baby sister's dresser and run away. For a long time, Andrea bore the label slapped on Doreen for so many years, endangered runaway. She remained in that pigeonhole for a long time even featuring in the classic video for Soul Asylum's 1993 hit song, Runaway Train. For some reason, Dennis's troubling history with young women both before and after Andrea disappeared wasn't ringing anybody's alarm bells. In 1980, when Andrea was six, Dennis had been arrested for trying to lure a woman into a wooded area, threatening that he would blow a hole right through her. That little incident resulted in a plea deal. In 1998, Dennis was arrested for breaking into a co-worker's home to steal items, including the woman's lingerie. Although Andrea had been missing for nine years at that point, 
Bauman characterized himself the proud father of two lovely daughters, one 25 and the other 11, in a letter to the sentencing judge. Parenting, Dennis wrote, was one of the most important and sobering things a person can undertake. Apparently, being father of the year had left Dennis with time to pursue other activities. In 2019, he was arrested for the 1980 cold case killing of Kathleen Doyle, found stabbed and choked with a cord in her home. While awaiting trial for that murder, Dennis finally confessed to killing Andrea. He claimed he'd found her getting ready to leave, her duffel bag already packed. When he tried to stop her, she threatened to tell the authorities directly that he had been molesting her. That was when Dennis slapped or punched or pushed her. He couldn't recall which, and she fell down the stairs. Dennis also could not remember whether Andrea died instantly. In some accounts, he said she had broken her neck, or whether she had been moaning. Either way, he burned the duffel bag packed with her things in a barrel and hid her body in his barn, where she lay, probably dead, when he called the police an hour later to report her missing. Andrea's biological mother Kathy learned in 2010, over 20 years later, when she went searching for the daughter she had given up, had vanished. When Dennis finally confessed, she was as relieved as she could be. Honestly, she said, it just validates this horrible feeling I've had all along. It doesn't really do a whole lot for me. I really truly wish I had been wrong about this. That would mean she would be alive. So, in a lot of really horrible ways, it validates for me. It also, in a lot of good ways, validates for me. I'm not just some crazy person that is imagining this. What I thought in his background really was something to stand up and be alerted about. Another story bearing haunting resemblance to Doreen's is that of Alyssa Turney. Alyssa was 17 when she disappeared from the Arizona home she shared with her stepfather, Michael, on May 17, 2001. That day, Michael claimed he picked Alyssa up early from her last day at school to take her out to lunch, where she became angry she didn't have more privileges. When they returned home, Michael said, Alyssa was still angry and went straight to her room, so he left to do errands and pick up his younger daughter, Sarah. When Sarah and Michael returned to the house, they found a note on Alyssa's bed stating she had taken some money and run away to California. Despite all the things she had left behind, including her keys, cell phone, and an untouched $1,800 in savings, the police still treated Alyssa as, you guessed it, an endangered runaway. As with Andrea before her, saddling Alyssa with that label required the police to overlook a lot of creepy shit about her father. Alyssa's mother had passed away when Alyssa was only eight, and Michael Turney began to take a disturbing amount of interest in his daughter. He set up surveillance cameras all over their home, recorded all incoming and outgoing phone conversations, stalked her at work, and made Alyssa sign contracts pledging good behavior. And that wasn't the worst. Alyssa had reported to several people that Michael had gagged, handcuffed, and sexually abused her, allegations Michael denied. He'd even called Child Protective Services the year before Alyssa vanished to tell them that if Alyssa ever filed a molestation complaint against him, she would be lying. Despite the fact that these dark truths lay just under the surface, the police bought Michael's story for years, and her case languished. That is, until Sarah Turney, who was 12 when Alyssa supposedly left, recently shined a spotlight on the case, waging a podcast and social media war with the police designed to make them take action. And it worked. In August 2020, more than 19 years after Alyssa vanished off the face of the earth, Michael Turney was arrested in Phoenix for her murder. Like Andrea, and like Alyssa, Doreen was a very real girl who lived a very real life and likely suffered a very dark end. 
And it's cases like these, representing hard-won lights at the end of long, dark tunnels, that keep me going. It's not enough to make assumptions and jump to conclusions about what evil befell her. We owe Doreen more than that. I want to know if she knew what was happening to her and why. Did she see it coming? And what were the last words out of her mouth? Finding her means we have to dig deep, follow her into the world she inhabited, pour over the evidence again and again, and work it to dust. As Wallingford's so-called prospective law enforcement action against that unnamed suspect continues to drag on, let's marshal everything we know and keep caring, keep pushing, keep fighting. I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Season 2, Episode 2 of Sticky Beak, a key that could use a little turning. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk. Sticky Beak is proud to be part of the CMG Podcast Network, home to over 40 podcasts, including true crime shows, Crimes and Consequences, Ivy League Murders, and Burn, the Unsolved Murder of David Iman. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to join our private Facebook group and visit our website at clovercrestmedia.com slash stickybeak. I need to say something important at the top of this episode. I can never know for certain, nor can I tell you, that Mark Vincent had anything to do with the disappearance or death of his daughter. To speculate is one thing, but guys, I'm a lawyer, and I'm too smart to ever state I know what happened as a fact. Lieutenant Robert Fliss, who searched for Doreen back in 89, summed up the problem for the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal in 2001, 20 years ago, with two words. Probable cause, he said. There is no case to prove anybody did anything. If you lay out the facts, you know something happened, but what? There have been cases before that have been prosecuted without a body. We can't prove there was a murder at the present time. That's not to say it couldn't change. But just last February, after I poked and pushed and prodded the cops all the way to a second FOIA hearing, something did change. Doreen is no longer listed as an endangered runaway. She's listed as a homicide victim. As to Doreen's actual fate, maybe Mark Vincent is the only one who can answer those questions. And how can I know what only lives in one man's head? By his own admission, he was the last to see Doreen alive. And the women in his life during that time, who might be able to shed some light on what happened, his wife, Sharon Vincent, and later, his girlfriend, Roseanne Poloni, are dead. And Mark doesn't want any part of this story. He wants to pack it up and sell it off wholesale. Questioned by Fliss and his partner Tom Hanley back in July 89, Mark insisted that while he cared about his daughter, he had to be hard and overlook all the hell that he'd heard and been through because of her. In February 1991, as Mark awaited sentencing on the gun the police had found in his mother Lori's house, Mark spoke to Valerie Roth of the Danbury News Times. I don't know where she is, he told her. Roth's next line is chilling. And then she wrote, as if he were bored with questions on the subject, Vincent said, quote, I love my daughter very much, and so on, and so forth. The frustration with Mark has always been palpable. It doesn't help to see his smiling face pop up all over the Teen Challenge Facebook page. There, you can watch him enjoying Thanksgiving and opening Christmas presents, always armed with a grin despite three failed marriages and one missing daughter. Sometimes I even dream about Mark. Told you this work does messed up things to my brain. 
I dream he's in the TV room at his shitty little halfway house, surrounded by a group of friends. Perhaps in a callback to my teen years, which featured three TV movies about so-called Long Island Lolita Amy Fisher, the men in my dream laughed till they cried over three televised versions of Doreen's story. In my nightmare, the men were hysterical, clutching their sides by the choices TV execs made to play Doreen and her mother Donna. The men slung their arms around Mark, offered him companionship and solace. You guys know those dreams where you wake up pissed off? This was one of them. But there are some who won't offer Mark solace. People like his older brother Brad, who left Connecticut for college long before Doreen's birth in 1975 and didn't look back. Brad still uses email to try to push Mark's buttons and copies me on every one. Here's a sample from last summer. Mark, as I continue through the pile of misery that you've caused, I have found written things that will baffle most psychologists. They could spend years trying to figure out why someone had it so good came out so bad. Anyway, this is another one of my favorites from you. In prison, of course, where you spent much of your early life. To mom, and I call it Mark the Marriage Counselor. Here we have you advising mom and dad on marriage and their impending divorce. I'm sure that anyone who knows you can grasp the idiocy of this, given your lack of understanding of the damage that you've inflicted on others, plus your own failed relationships, even at this stage of your life. Nevertheless, you did seem to grasp the idea that you may be indirectly responsible for the impending divorce of your parents and the effect that it could have on young siblings. Wow, Mark, you have an uncanny sense of the obvious. And now that you're an adult, and I use that term loosely, do you have any idea of the damage that you've done to your living kids? They have to be mental cases with you as their father. Anyway, I hope that you're enjoying these trips through memory lane, and I'll keep them coming. Listeners know Brad has written his brother countless emails, but somehow this one was different. This one finally got to Mark, because a few days later, he wrote back, but in the most ass-backwards way. Mark had only written his response in the reply subject line, and not the body of the email, so most of it was cut off. Brad, Mark wrote, if you choose to believe everything you hear, that's on you. I listened to the first podcast from whatever his name is, John and that was all I had to hear. And of course, I've heard stuff from friends over the months. What a composite of shows, watch. I found this incomplete missive baffling, and so did Brad, who replied, Mark, first of all, you need to understand how email works. You don't type your response in the subject line. After you hit reply, type your message in the large area below that line. As a result, I only got a couple of sentences, see above, but it was enough to know that you're still the same clueless and in denial. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? You're not trying to dupe some idiot that you just met on the street. Unfortunately, I'm related to you, remember? I can't even imagine being mom and dad and trying to deal with you. You put them through hell. You have to know that, right? But then again, I'm sure that it was their fault that you turned out to be such a piece of shit, just like all the misery you've caused that was someone else's fault, right? Brad set out a laundry list of Mark's crimes, ranging from the arson at the Whitehorse Tavern in Brewster, New York, for which he was imprisoned when Doreen was very small, to the robbery of the payphone. Anyway, Brad wrote, here's a small sampling of what you've done, and I guarantee I don't know most of it. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to with all your lies and denials? Of course, I'm sure that you're innocent of all this, and that you were just misunderstood, or it was just hearsay that you got arrested and charged. Again, who the fuck do you think you're trying to bullshit? 
At any rate, somehow you've always been able to convince yourself that someone else is at fault and they made you do it. Perhaps this is how you come out of prison with a clear conscience as a born again. What a crock that is, and are now qualified to dictate to others how they should live. I'm not even going to get into the podcast details because you'll just call it hearsay. However, we all know, including you, that you molested Donna's sisters and Doreen and then killed her. How do you do it, Mark? How do you do all the things that you've done and live with it? And the hearsay that you speak of comes from the people who were involved, not mumbo-jumbo on the street. In 32 years, Doreen has never been heard from, so what's your theory on what happened to her? If the Wallingford police hadn't screwed up the case, you'd probably still be in prison as a pedophile and murderer. At any rate, some part of you still knows the truth, even though you've done a good job of hiding it from others. So let's talk for a minute about Mark's truth. His tale of what happened to his daughter is very familiar to even a casual listener of this podcast. But without the benefit of anything else from the police file, at least for now, it's important to examine it again and again to find something we might have missed. In early June of 1988, Doreen had just finished seventh grade at Westwoods Academy in the central Connecticut town of Hamden. Mark and Sharon, who'd married Mark five years earlier in 1984, moved their little family, along with toddlers Sarah and Paul, to a rambling farmhouse in the hills of Wallingford, sort of sandwiched between Hamden and my hometown of Meriden. The reason for the 30-mile move from urban Bridgeport, located at the base of the state and along Long Island Sound, has never been established to my satisfaction, although I've been able to suss out that a church friend of Mark's named Glenn Alkire introduced him to Frank IML of New Haven's Frank's Paint and Wallpaper, where Mark found a job. While painting houses for Frank, Mark met Jimmy Farnham, the farmhouse's owner, and uprooted the family to what can only be described as Cowtown to be Jimmy's renter. According to Mark and Sharon, Doreen disappeared on June 15th, a Wednesday, less than two weeks after they had arrived in town. After that, their stories diverge, widely. According to interviews Mark gave the cops over a year later, on July 16th and 17th, 1989, He and Doreen had gotten into an argument in the afternoon, and he became angry enough to paddle her in her room. At one point, Mark would later tell private investigator Richard Novia, he had pushed Doreen hard, so hard she backed up into a window and broke it. Doreen's screams were so loud, Mark told the police, that Sharon had taken little Sarah and Paul out into the yard so they wouldn't have to hear it. Whirlwind Hill neighbor Jimmy Piscotti had heard screams too, and a commotion up the hill at his new neighbor's house in the days before Doreen went missing. But that was on the weekend, Piscotti recalled, because he'd taken the day off from his plumbing business and was tending his yard. After the fight, Mark told police, he last saw his daughter in the kitchen at about 9 p.m. when he went out to an outbuilding he'd made into his workshop to cool off. When he came back, the front door to the house was standing wide open, and Doreen was gone. Sharon was interviewed on July 8, 1989, about a week before Mark. Unlike her husband, she didn't mention a broken window or describe shielding Sarah and Paul from their big sister's screams in the big open yard. Not only did she not mention a fight or any paddling, but she didn't seem to think that Mark had been home that afternoon at all. According to Sharon's statement, barely totaling a page and a half, Mark had been at work that entire day arriving home at 4.30 or 5 to the dinner she had waiting for him. He and the three kids were still eating, she said, at about 6 or 6.15, when she left to make the 18-mile ride to the couple's West Haven church. 
As for the detail about the front door standing open, Sharon was confused. That door was deadbolted from the inside, she told police, and when she'd left, it had been closed and locked. Not only that, she reported, only she and Mark had the keys. Years later, after I started looking into Doreen's story, Mark would complain to sources of mine about my focus on that door. Who gives a fuck about a door, he said. If Doreen wanted to get out, she would have found a way. I've mentioned that Doreen's family hired a second psychic in 2016 to look into what happened to her. Again, I need to stress that I am not reporting what Vanessa says as fact. Lord knows she could have looked up any of the few articles that existed at that time and drawn from them, so I want you to listen with a skeptical ear. But right off the bat, what Vanessa says is striking. She told me that he's been lying. Well, she said he lies, and she said he's been lying, and he lied about this whole thing. She does not think of him as a dad. That's what she just told me. I was like, she said, I don't think of him as my dad. I think of him as a stranger. I can't help but think the scene she sets is haunting in its familiarity. I feel um, from what she's giving me that there was some kind of an argument going on. I'm not sure it was between... Um, her dad and her or her mom and her does that make any sense mm -hmm. so there's some some uh disconnecting energy there um she's telling me she was pretty upset she said i was very upset she told me i don't know what this means so just jot this down are you recording in any way but she told me she felt like she was climbing the walls which isn't a phrase that a kid would use mm -hmm. but that's what um she's telling me like she felt like she was almost trapped and she said she was trying to look for a way out. Hearing this, my mind returns to someone close to Doreen, who told me that in those last days, when Mark entered a room, she slunk out as quietly as she could, like a scared little cat. And in the picture Vanessa paints, we hear about that well-known Mark Vincent temper and why Doreen might have been feeling on edge. She's telling me her father did not listen to a word she said. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. I know I'm looking at you, but you weren't part of this back then. Yes. Um, yes, sense. she's saying... She's, yeah, this is better because we're not in a bigger group. She said um, her dad never, didn't, not never. He said, he, she said he didn't listen to me. I'm going to shut this off so I can hear her. Yeah, didn't listen to her. My dad didn't listen to me. I think they were having it out more often than not with arguing and um, not seeing eye to eye. That's my phrase, not hers. He threatened to kill her, you know. He said it out loud. He said, I, I will kill you. She did not believe him. And so here we are, the fight between father and daughter, leading to an encounter with an all-too-familiar door and the briefest of escapes. She's showing me, um, this is kind of like a remote viewing, too. She's, we're incorporating what she's telling me, and she's letting me see things, okay? Just so I just want you to both, all the three of you, understand that. She said, um, yeah, she was trying, she was definitely trying to get away from him. She told me she snuck out. She's showing me a front door that looks like it's like barricaded or something. It almost looked like it was dead bolted or nailed shut or something. It's bizarre. Maybe this is just an analogy, but I think she didn't want to go out the very front door, but I think she thought about it. I am seeing them having a pretty good fight where they're arguing with each other and he's kind of strong arming her a little bit, you know? She's showing me herself opening a door and him coming right from behind and slamming it shut so she couldn't go. A little disturbing. So it's, you know, like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, it's that kind of thing going on. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, I'm getting I'm getting out of here. You're an asshole. She called him an asshole. Mm -hmm. And um, she says, I hate this. I hate you. You're an asshole. And that really, she's showing me his face getting like bright red temper. Mm -hmm. 
big time. She's showing me now like a um, like a side door of a house. Um, not really a it's not a back door. I think there was some kind of a side door to this house, but he went out or something. He was he was not with her. I think he went out just to blow off steam before he really did hurt her in that moment. And she's showing me herself out. Now she's walking. She's not running, she's walking and she's crying and she's mad, but she's crying. I see the tears coming down. The police didn't search the house or even enter it until July of 1989 over a year after Doreen disappeared, when they received consent to search from Jimmy Farnham. Donna was there, though, that Saturday, June 18th, when she came to pick Doreen up. She and her sister Carol told me the window did look broken, but not like a kid had backed into it or been pushed into it. It was more like it had been shot through with a bullet. Years later, then-Sergeant Jeff Cifarelli told me that in 1989, the window had been replaced but the police had found broken glass on the floor. This is weird for a couple of reasons. First, it begs the question as to why no one, including Farnham or Laura West, his wife, had cleaned it up in the months since Doreen vanished, Mark fled, and Sharon left. We also have to consider physics. It stands to reason that if the window had been shot through, the glass would be on the outside, not on the room itself. There's also the matter of the ladder pushed up against that bedroom window from outside a ladder which has always dogged me, because I can't see where it fits into the narrative. Maybe that and the window are red herrings. Maybe someone was trying to stage a scene. And one other little thing nags at me. Laura West's memory of a young Paul, then only three or so at the time, heading toward broken glass with a wild look in his eye, like he was intent on doing some damage. Laura won't let me use her voice for this project, but recalling this memory, she was shocked at Sharon's blind eye. Keep your son away from that glass, Laura said to Sharon. To this day, I don't know where that glass was, and something tells me Laura isn't taking follow-up calls. Finally, there's the comforter. While memory has blurred the details, Doreen's mother and aunts do recall that it was a part of a matching bedroom set picked out for Doreen by Donna's mother, Jane. They think it was decked out in rainbows. Entering Doreen's bedroom at 1316, Donna and Carol saw the bed had been stripped. At first, Sharon and Mark told them they were washing it because Doreen had messed it up. It especially gave Carol a really bad feeling. Days afterward, when the women pressed, the couple claimed it had been beyond saving, so they'd thrown it away. According to police records, Sharon would later give Donna back the matching curtains, canopy, and pillows, as well as Doreen's dresser and the bed itself. Recently, I asked Donna about this. That's a lie, she told me. And so the location of those multiple pieces of evidence, missing from the bedroom of a vanished 12-year-old, whose father claims he beat the shit out of her on the day she disappeared, remains a giant question mark. That's where the physical evidence in the file I have comes to an end. Assuming Doreen died, and here I will make that assumption, any account of how it happened died with her. Some people question if Doreen is still around, or at least if she really was a runaway. In episodes 3 and 4 of Sarah Demio's Faded Out Season 2, The Walking Roots and The Suspicion, we delved into serial killer Haddon Clark and whether his tale of kidnapping and killing a little girl he picked up in the 80s at a Wallingford bowling lane matches what we know about Doreen. I think we did a good job of ruling Clark out as a suspect, and 33 years later, it's hard to believe Doreen's just out there living her life. Donna knew that right away. 
her heart sinking that June day in 1988 when she realized Doreen wasn't with her father. I thought there was something more wrong, she told Jason Barry of the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal in 2001. She would have called. Where's a 12-year-old girl going to go, especially in a wooded area? There's nothing around. Family members echoed that sentiment in 1991, awaiting Mark's sentencing on the gun charge. Doreen had a great relationship with her maternal family, they said, and even though she had run away once before, fleeing Mark's home in New York State, she had headed right to her mother's in Waterbury. She was also no stranger to the phone, Doreen's great-aunt told journalist Valerie Roth back in 1991. She would always pick up a phone wherever she was. She was constantly calling us. Doreen's Aunt Debbie kept her phone number for years afterward, no matter where she moved, because it was simple. Doreen knew it and would call if she could. Finally, Debbie had to give it up when she moved to another town and wasn't able to keep the exchange. Interviewed by Anne DiMatteo of the Connecticut Post Chronicle in 2012, Donna's mother Jane didn't think technicalities like that would have stopped her granddaughter. If she were alive, I'm sure she would have contacted us. Some way, somehow, said Jane. Donna put a finer point on it for DiMatteo. I've come to accept the fact we may never know what happened to her, she said. Had her daughter not vanished, Donna lamented. There wouldn't have been such a void. She might have had children, been married. I think about her every day, and certain dates bring back memories. I miss her terribly. Mark Vincent was less pessimistic, telling Anne DiMatteo that he would like to think Doreen was alive. With tears in his eyes, he said he missed her, especially at times like Christmas, and that it would be like a dream to see her. You go on imagining all kinds of things. She could have been a doctor, he said. She cared about people. But there was always this turmoil pulled between two parents. It was like she had two lives. The police were well aware of Doreen's two lives from the day she went missing. Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, who later told me he thought there was bad blood between Donna and Sharon because Donna was jealous, noted as follows in his January 2019 press release. At the time of her disappearance, Doreen was a 12-year-old child from a divorce set of parents that had a visitation arrangement. Her father, Mark Vincent, had recently moved to Wallingford from Bridgeport with his wife Sharon and their two very young children. This was known to Doreen's mother, Donna Jones, at the time, and because occupancy of the Wallingford residence was recently established, as was the new telephone service, Donna initially did not have their phone number. This led to a lack of communication between Donna and Mark, a delay in reporting Doreen missing, and added to the suspicion surrounding this mystery. A lack of communication between Donna and Mark is a really nice way of saying that Mark, as well as Sharon, didn't tell anyone Doreen was missing for at least three days, until Donna made the discovery and forced Mark to call the police on June 18th. Even then, all the cops took was a one-page written report from Mark, stating that Doreen had run away before, was not happy at home, and hated her new town. Speaking with Jason Barry of the Record Journal in 2001, Donna's frustration with the police, who had refused to take her statement for weeks after June 18th, was still palpable. I can remember talking to the police officer on the phone, furious, cussing because they wouldn't listen to my side of the story, said Jones. They didn't want me to fill out the police report in the beginning because it would be confusing to have conflicting stories for any outsiders coming in who might take an interest in the case. That's what they told me. But when it came to Donna, that's not what the investigators were telling each other. On July 9, 1988, 
Just two days after his intake meeting with Doreen's mother, Richard Novia jotted in his notes, met with Detective Cameron, went over what he knew and believed. Cameron strongly believes Donna knows Doreen's whereabouts. Secondly, that she ran away. And the department's doubt started to spread to Novia, too, like a bad rash. On July 12, 1988, the PI received a call from Debbie. She wanted to know about the car that Novia, his partner Hoffman, and, unknown to Debbie, 17-year-old Heather Parker had seen rapidly entering and exiting the Vincent's driveway during their stakeout the night before. Novia thought Debbie seemed overly curious, overly interested. I got the impression, he wrote, she knew something about it. Novia then briefly toyed with the possibility that Doreen had tried to call Donna or Debbie on June 15th, the day Mark said she ran away, but was unable to reach them because both were at work and Donna didn't have an answering machine. Perhaps, Novia thought, Doreen might have tried to reach her uncle Mike, Debbie's husband, at work, but almost as quickly as he scribbled that theory down, Novia abandoned it. I have the phone records from Whirlwind Hill for the days in question, so I checked. The first and only call made from that house on June 15th was the first any of the Vincent family had ever placed from that new phone hookup. It was from 1126 that night when Sharon called her church friend, Patricia Little, to ask for prayer. While some police officers might have thought Doreen had been squirreled away by her mother's family, others assumed something much uglier. In 2001, Ed D'Onofrio, the patrol sergeant who responded to the scene and took Mark's report, painted a rosy picture of how the Wallingford PD spent the first precious days of its investigation. He told Jason Barry, If it wasn't that night, it was the next morning. We realized something was wrong. It was the interval that he claimed she was missing and that he kept it from his ex-wife and never bothered to tell anyone either. D'Onofrio's pat on his own back is complete bullshit. And it's not just belied by the giant gaps in the police record. Remember the private investigator Donna's family hired? No, not Richard Novia. Not the second investigator, or the third either. The fourth PI hired by the family had asked me that I keep him anonymous to keep some distance between this story and his family and business. I'm going to call him Kingsley. Recall that Kingsley had demanded to know, when the cops finally searched the Whirlwind House in July of 1989, why it had taken them over a year to get moving. Remember that D'Onofrio's response to Kingsley's question had been that he'd assumed Doreen had run off because she was, after all, just a little slut. And Kingsley had jacked him up against the wall. Dark assumptions about Doreen had been lodged in the PD's consciousness since day one, and they were having a hard time seeing past it. Mark himself had laid that groundwork in his June 18, 1988 missing persons report letting the cops know that Doreen had run away once to her mother's in Waterbury. On June 6, 1987, approximately, he wrote. When asked to give his thoughts on her destination, he surprisingly didn't list Waterbury, even though he'd accused Donna of hiding a runaway Doreen this time, too. Instead, he mused that she had run off to Norwalk, or Stamford, or Bridgeport. That last city was where the Vincent family had lived until their recent move, and all three were urban giants compared to little old Wallingford. A story began to take hold of a little girl who, as Ralph Tomaselli wrote for the Record Journal in 1988, just could not get used to the cornfields and barns that surround her new Whirlwind Hill home. Doreen, Tomaselli wrote, who had lived in Bridgeport and Waterbury for most of her life, 
and moved to rural East Wallingford earlier this month, preferred the hustle and bustle, the bright lights of the city. If you were reading that article in real time, you didn't have to take Tomaselli's word for it, because Doreen's stepmother was there to feed the flame, to tell you that Doreen had been complaining about Wallingford ever since she set foot in the town. She liked having people nearby, like her friend, Sharon told the reporter, and she enjoyed the activity of the city. Here in Wallingford, she just felt like she was in the middle of nowhere. Looking back on it now, I realized she was anxious to leave. I didn't think so then, but now I do. She had no friends here, and she was just bored. Police agreed, telling the paper that it appeared Doreen was a runaway and that no foul play was suspected. Her vulnerability is great, WPD spokesman Thomas Curran told Thomas Ellie. She looks older than she is, and just the fact that you have a young girl out there on her own speaks for itself as far as the type of danger she could encounter. Others in law enforcement were less polite about their assumptions. Sergeant Paul Scannell, commander of the State Police Missing Persons Unit, told Tomaselli this about runaways. If they haven't gone to a friend's house and are just on the streets, they don't have a way to earn any money. They run into street people who sometimes sexually abuse them or get them involved in dealing drugs. Runaways, Skinnell said, could also become involved in sex work and pornography. This marked an important shift in the public's eye. All of a sudden, Doreen wasn't just a missing little girl. She was a child sex worker on Connecticut's meaner streets. The tips began to pour in. On July 28, 1988, Wallingford PD got an anonymous tip from a worker at Northeast Utilities, one of Connecticut's power companies, that the worker had seen a young white female, approximately 12 years old, who looked like Doreen and had bruises on her face. The location for this sighting was what the man called a hooker's hangout in Waterbury. Wallingford called the Waterbury PD to relay the tip, and there is no evidence in the file of any follow-up by either department. On July 24, 1988, according to Novia's report, the state police hotline received an anonymous report from a man of undetermined age and race, stating that he and his brother had both spent the night with Doreen in a house in North Haven. She'd left the next day with her pimp, the report said, traveling in a red Ford wagon. And let's never forget the illustrious August 4, 1988 memo from Detective Ragazzi from the State Missing Persons Unit. Ragazzi also had information that Doreen was working Bridgeport Streets with a pimp and had received a call from a guy claiming that he had, quote, just fucked Doreen. You remember how Steve, the reporting officer, ended the memo. Happy hunting. Even now, over 30 years since Doreen disappeared, this narrative of a troubled little girl walking the streets until they swallowed her up continues. Here again is Jimmy Farnham when I spoke to him in 2019. Hi, are you, you talking about in Wallingford? Yes. This is the, 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 the girl that went missing? Yep. And she was very spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was at 13 or 14. She was, I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very, uh, she reminded me of, uh, the, the young uh, uh, daughter in Beetlejuice. I mean, she was, she was always wearing black and very black hair, very pretty, and, uh, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like uh, oppositional. Okay. I think he had some troubles, they had some troubles with her discipline-wise, but then, you know, she disappeared. But I always thought she ran away. She was rumored to have been seen on the streets of Bridgeport, like, uh, sometime during that period. I've read and listened to these things over and over and over. 
and they piss me off every time. In the past, they've also made me feel helpless, but these days I try to channel that anger into something else. Recently, fuming about D'Onofrio's slut comment, I reached back out to Kingsley. I'd just found a nugget about him in Valerie Roth's February 1991 article about Mark's gun sentencing. It was Kingsley, Donna told the reporter, who jump-started the investigation when he pointed out a laundry list of inconsistencies in Mark's story to police. It didn't look like a missing persons case to me, the investigator told Roth. It appeared there was more to it than that. When I spoke to him last week, Kingsley hadn't recalled he'd been in the paper. My God, he said, that was half my lifetime ago. How are you finding this shit? I told Kingsley D'Onofrio had claimed the police got wise to Mark the morning after Doreen disappeared, and he snorted. He was also taken aback by Tom Hanley's 2001 account of how the investigation got its start, one which, I should mention, totally contradicted D'Onofrio's and which contradiction was never seized upon by journalist Jason Barry. Come on, Record Journal. Hanley had told Barry he was just assigned to Dorian's case in June 1989 after expressing an interest. Just one day the following spring, I asked Lieutenant Bill Butka what happened to the Dorian Vincent case, Hanley said. I just got curious, I guess. I don't know what happened in the first year of the investigation. Not a whole lot of stuff was done, I guess. It was initially handled as a runaway. Kingsley's memory was clearer. In 1989, he'd been hired by Donna's Uncle Mike, whom he knew personally, for one dollar. He'd realized quickly that Wallingford wasn't just not sharing information with Doreen's family, but that it also wasn't working with the police department in Bethel, where Mark had spent years raising hell as that PD's public enemy number one, or in Danbury, where Sharon had since moved in with her parents. Walking into the Wallingford station, Kingsley's request to review the Doreen's Vincent file was met with dismissal. It's over there if you want to take a look at it, said the lieutenant in charge with a roll of his eyes. Kingsley did just that and soon was calling two guys whose names he didn't recall, but who are pretty clearly Robert Fliss and Tom Hanley, to go over the file with him. They were great, Kingsley remembers. Once the investigation really got going, it was all hands on deck. But in the end, of course, it all came to naught, a result that still keeps Kingsley up at night. I gave my life to this case, he told me. And in the end, I had to stop because it was eating me alive. I couldn't sleep. I was obsessed. I bet he would recognize the sentiment behind Tom Hanley's photo of Doreen, encased in the glass topping his desk since he took the job as police chief in Middlebury, Vermont, in 1991. These days, there is one major difference. While Hanley still refuses to speak to me, Kingsley has rededicated himself to the effort. I told my wife you got in touch with me again, he told me. She said, do whatever you can to help that girl. By girl, I thought she was talking about Doreen, but she meant me. And so that's what I've been up to since Foya turned me down, marshalling my resources. Recently, I turned to Tad Tobias, who in August 2020 was tapped to be chief counsel for the Capitol Police in Washington, D.C. In his other life, Tobias is regarded as the no-body guy, the country's leading expert in successfully trying no-body cases like Doreen's. Tobias got his start in what he calls the no-body world in 2006, when as D.C.'s assistant U.S. attorney, he prosecuted Harold Austin for the murder of Marion Fye. Marion, a mother of five, had vanished on Thanksgiving Day 2003. When Austin finally reported the disappearance on December 5th, almost two weeks later, he was nonchalant, explaining that Marion had stormed off after he confronted her about her drinking. In the meantime, Austin busied himself getting to know another woman, 
a city employee with whom he'd had a fender bender. The two moved in together, and she bought him a new Ford Expedition. And for a while, Marion was categorized as a missing person. But slowly, after a few weeks, Marion's children and their friends who'd been with them that night began to talk. They'd heard Marion and Austin arguing, they told the cops, which ended when Marion screamed no in Austin's nickname, Divine. Then the kids said they'd heard a gunshot and Austin carrying something heavy up the stairs. Later, one of the children saw Austin carrying a small caliber gun. The police confronted Austin at the apartment he'd shared with Marion, flipping the couple's mattress over to see it covered in blood. That was Austin's cue to leave. But the couple caught up with him in 2005, charging him with murder. Tobias won that case, arguing that a woman who had left behind not only her keys, license, credit card, and purse, but also her beloved children, wasn't just missing. She was dead. That victory led Tobias to put together a detailed, exhaustive list of every no-body trial from the dawning of America through the present, now as of May 2021, totaling 550. He uses this information to train police departments and DAs all over the country on how to successfully investigate and prosecute cases just like Doreen's. I wanted to know more, so I called him up. There's generally two things people like me to talk about. They either like me to sort of specifically look at the media about the case and then kind of talk about the case um, itself, which I'll tell you in a minute why I'm less disposed to doing that, but open to it. And then there's just generally talking about nobody cases, um, uh, generally. The reason I don't necessarily like to talk too much about the specifics um, is I always hold out the hope, um, which has not happened in this case, that the police would be willing to work with me um, on a particular case. And sometimes I find if you talk too many specifics, then they get irritated or they think, oh, he had to do one way or the other about this case. Um, and I always tell people that I'm very open to working um, with any department on a case, which I, I, I've done probably 40 times okay. over the past close to now 10 years. Um, and so, it, you know, if you think that's a possibility, I know it doesn't sound like you have the best relationship with the, with the PD, um, but sometimes if you think there's a possibility and think the family might be interested in pressing for that, um, I like to maintain a little bit of ability to, to be um, open-minded about it. Because okay. when I do, the only way I work with the police is if they'll open up their files to me. Mm -hmm. um, and share um, the information with me. And then I tell the police, obviously, I don't talk about the case with anybody else, even the family. Mm -hmm. After that, that once they've invited me in, I'm mm -hmm. kind of on their team and I don't talk at all. Um, um, but I'm always willing to kind of just talk generally about mm -hmm. body cases because there's a lot of commonalities in the cases that you see kind of repeated from case to case. Sticky Beaks, let me stop you right there because I know what you're thinking. Of course, I asked Michael Colavolpe, just promoted to police captain, if he and the department would consider working with the no-body guy. His answer was a tepid, I don't think so. We'd have to get permission from the state's attorney, he told me. So while the very existence of a nationally renowned expert like Tobias gives me hope, I'm still limited on how much muscle he can bring to this case in light of the WPD's reluctance to let him in. I'm also troubled by a monumental difference between Doreen's case and Marion Fye's. With Marion, at least the police had ear witnesses and blood. 
Here, all our evidence is circumstantial. I asked Tobias whether this difference would stand in the way of a conviction for the person or persons responsible. There are layers and layers and layers about, you know, the stepmother lying and the girl's clothes eventually showing up at the stepmother's house that she was supposed to go have gone missing in. You know, there's a lot of that. But one thing I noticed about the Phi case was that they at least knew that something had happened to their mother or their family member because they heard her screaming, yelling his name. And then I think someone saw him transporting something heavy down the stairs. Yeah, one of the children saw, they actually heard it. They didn't see um, Harold Austin bring Marion up the stairs, but heard it. And it sounded like someone walking up the stairs carrying a weight. And she she was probably about... I know she's probably about 160, 170 pounds, and he was a very big dude himself. He was about 6'4", 240. So that combined weight going up the stairs, they heard that. Right. So, and I'd like to set something else up with you. I know we're coming up on seven, but just the 86% of cases, I mean, obviously the ones that go to trial successfully, no body, those are going to be the ones that the prosecutors are presenting the strongest evidence because you're not going to bring something to trial if it's you're not likely to convict, um, especially Correct. with no body. Yep. Are, is, does there generally have to be some sort of direct proof? Because for me, a lot of what happened in this case is circumstantial. Like, for example, didn't report her missing, uh, lied about his whereabouts. She had a diary that he burned afterwards um he got rid of her comforter he said she messed her comforter up no one knows where the comforter went you know stuff like that where it's like it's all circumstantial but there's no one there to say hey father i saw you do xyz because nobody else was there but the stepmother who's dead that's very common though in nobody cases they're almost solely circumstantial cases it is very rare to have co-defendants in nobody cases it happens but it's rare it's very rare rare to have eyewitnesses. My case was unusual because I did have some kind of sort of eyewitnesses, but definitely what we call ear witnesses, people who heard damning things. That is definitely um, the common no-body murder case is purely circumstantial. Oh, okay. It does not typically pre- present a problem because there's actually a jury instruction that says you have to consider direct and circumstantial evidence exactly the same in a court of law. And there's a lot of analogies. There's a whole story I give um, about that very fact that under the law, direct and circumstantial are not different quantums of evidence. They're to be considered the same. And you can give, you know, the best example is the snowfall example, right? Mm -hmm. You look out your bed room tonight and it's snowing. You go to bed, you get up, you see snow on the sidewalk, you see snow. That's because you know it snowed last night because you saw it. But if you went to bed tonight, you looked out the window, it hadn't snowed, there's no snow on the ground. You go to bed, you wake up, you look out, there's snow on the sidewalk, there's snow on your lawn. You know for a fact it snowed last night, even though you didn't see it. That's circumstantial evidence. You don't have any direct proof that it snowed. Now, is it possible in the middle of the night a Hollywood screen production team came and threw snow everywhere? Yeah, I suppose it's possible, but it's not very reasonable, it's not very likely. And when you use those analogies, you people recognize they use circumstantial evidence in their life every single mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. and that it's really not that different than kind of a layperson's idea. Oh, they only have circumstantial evidence on me. 
that's not really a legal difference. It's only kind of what, what people say. I see. Okay, that's really helpful. As much as Tobias wasn't able to comment specifically on Doreen's case, a lot of the constants he learned in his research rang familiar to me. What about like a consciousness of guilt? You know, do you do you feel when there's no body? Is that more of an opportunity thing? Like the person had the opportunity to get rid of a body or is it a familial aspect to it? I mean, what's because obviously to me, that's making the crime that much worse. Murder's bad enough as it is, but. When you hide a body, you take away somebody's ability to mourn for that person or for there to be right, finality. Absolutely. And, you know, with a child, it's even worse because, you know, your, your, your victimology of a child is much, much narrower world than the victimology of most people because, you know, a child's world really, for the most part, revolves around, particularly a 12-year-old, revolves around their family. And that's kind of it. I mean, kids have friends, Mm -hmm. but a 12-year-old doesn't generally kill another 12-year-old. You know, maybe an older boy does or something like that. But you're really talking about in the vast majority um, of missing children, um, it is the parents or someone who is closely related to them. There are exceptions that even in the nobody world mm-hmm. um so you can't have blinders on um but your logical suspect is to start with the family because in a nobody murder case about 52 percent of them are domestic violence which means a uh, husband wife ex-husband ex-wife boyfriend girlfriend ex-boyfriend ex-girlfriend and parent and child parent mm-hmm. and child is actually the second largest category of the people in romantic relationships in the domestic, well, in the nobody world, really, is, is that's the second largest category of those types of murders. Um, and that's what you tend to see in the nobody cases is some relationship between um, the two people. Right. And I, I think another thing of another interview of yours that I was listening to talked about maybe a sexual relationship between the people, which is sort of what you're touching upon now. And I think, you know, all signs in this case, too, point to some sort of sexual abuse. Uh, right, and that's obviously a, a very um, important element because having a child old enough to discuss or to tell someone else of the sexual abuse um, is is really quite damning. And actually, you know, in a pedophile's mind, it's almost better to commit a murder mm-hmm. um, and possibly be caught for that than to commit um, pedophilia and be caught for that. I think there's in an odd way, greater shame and disgust over that, particularly if someone were to go to prison, okay. um, where everybody knows pedophiles are not generally treated very well in prison by fellow inmates and probably even by the guard. Um, and, and so there's almost a perverse incentive to say, if I think this person is going to reveal this information or if I think there's you know, physical evidence that a 12-year-old might have of being physically and sexually abused, I'm better off taking the chance of killing her um, than I am of getting caught because she tells someone or she confides in someone. That comment caught me off guard. When it came to parent-child murders, I asked Tobias, what's more likely, that it was planned or resulted from one brief moment when someone saw red? Okay, so that takes into account a sort of a planned, I guess, crime. But you could also argue too, right, that there could be a moment, like a breaking point potentially, where things just come to a head and the person dies or is murdered and then you have this body you have to get rid of. Yeah, that's, I would say that's 
I find that less likely. I mean, sometimes you have these kind of crimes of passion, um, but those tend to happen between two people who are in a romantic relationship. Um, <clears throat> as we all know, you know, it's, it's like the movie. I don't know if you remember the Spike Lee movie, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. And there's a character called Radio Rahim. And at one point he sticks out his fists and he has rings. One says love and one says hate. And he basically talks about how these things are so closely connected. And anyone who's been in a relationship can understand that. And so there's, to me, there's more of that heat of the moment, heat of passion type of thing in the relationship atmosphere than there really is in a parent-child. I mean, obviously, it sounds like you have kids and everyone gets mad at their kids, um, but the impulse to murder your kids is usually significantly less than sometimes you get so mad at a romantic partner. So I think in a child murder case, I find they are much less the result of passion and much more the result of um, either a pattern of behavior or occasionally you'll find someone who's like a boyfriend of the mother and he mistreats the infant, drops her, does something to her, hits her too hard, those types of things. But uh, here I assume it was his, it was her biological father, correct? Yes. Yeah, and I, I just think that's, in that type of case, there usually is more suggestive of some type of planning going on um, and kind of kind of heat of the moment. Over the last couple of years, I've spoken to innumerable people about Mark Vincent. His name brings to mind temper, rage, and violence. When many theorize about Doreen's end, about her last moments, it often calls to mind images of a girl being beaten in a bedroom, of a broken window, of screams. I think of Andrea Bowman's father, Dennis, who couldn't recall how he had inadvertently caused her to fall down the stairs. But others have seen a different story playing out. Her father had only moved Doreen to Wallingford days earlier, for reasons that remain unexplained, and suddenly everything went to hell in a handbasket. Aunt Debbie, who always suspected that Mark did to Doreen what he had done to her, doesn't believe that timing was a coincidence. That was Mark telling the police or the newspaper people yeah. there's a pedophile in the family yeah which is projection i think well that's just getting his meat off him right <laughs> right right that's all he's trying to do and everything he says and there and i don't believe that mike ever touched her i i know he didn't um i think he's too big of a wuss to do anything like that <laughs> yeah it takes a lot of balls for a guy to yeah no shit yeah mark has him well, Mark also had her alienated, you know? Yeah, he did. He had her alienated and he had her away from others. And he liked it that way. Total control. Well, that's what he did to Sharon, too. Yeah. Because all I can ever think about that's is... what he used to try to do to Donna, too, but he was too young to make a life for them, so they were always under my parents. Try to make her, like... Isolated. Isolator. Um, oh my God, buddy! Just wait, like two seconds. Um. Well, maybe he didn't have his like his skills honed either. You know. Because even your mom told me, like, your mom's like, I'm still scared of him. Like, you know, 
I don't blame her. Well, he's a psychopath. He is a psycho. And he's got no conscience. You really don't. He says everything's about Mark. He's a self-centered kind of guy. Me, me, me. I, I, I. I'm going to do this. Well, if you're living three decades with that, either the guilt is going to crush you or you're a psychopath so you can manage it. Yeah, I think it's the second. But this isn't Mark's story. It's Doreen's. She was so much more than her disappearance or her death or a newspaper story or this podcast. She had a whole life to look forward to. All of it was overshadowed by her inability to make any real friends as she was bounced from school to school, by her sadness at her displacement in the world, and by the despair that I believe she suffered at the hands of her father. I think about that song, Runaway Train. Call you up in the middle of the night, sings Dave Perner, like a firefly without a light. You were there like a blowtorch burning. I was a key that could use a little turning. When I lay awake at night thinking about Doreen, I realize we're the key and that this case isn't going to be solved without us. We owe it to that kid to find out once and for all not only what happened to her, but where she might be. Next time on Sticky Beak. Walk, softly children. Walk, softly children. Walk, softly children. Find your freedom, little children.